pressure's on. To make a long story short, uh, I made it to the tryout out of 600 or so athletes. I made it to the last 30. I just didn't get picked up for the team. And at that point, running every day was such a habit and part of my routine that I kept up with it. And it wasn't shortly after that until I really fell in love with the sport and dove headfirst into becoming a runner. Then fast forward to today, and I'm never not running. That's so cool. If you're that like kind of type A, just like geek, like when you're into something, like you're into something, you're, it, you're always going to go full in with whatever you're doing. And I'm that person too. And a lot of people that I meet, even in like cycling, running, or like, even if it isn't like an athletic community, like I just find myself drawn to those people that like have their thing. And if somebody has that, like that fire, typically like I click with that person because I'm like, oh yeah, yeah, like you, you got it. You got the fire for life. You. I love those types of people. You can have a fire about anything. Yeah. And for me, moving to New York, I got really into photography. I caught that spark that fueled that fire. How can you not? It's so inspiring. I remember this like it was yesterday. My first day in New York City, walking to the office in Soho, I felt like I was in a movie scene. The first day was very much shock and awe. And the second day was like, all right, been there, done that. Yeah. Let's get to work. And you're just on the grind. Yeah. I landed a job in, in marketing and advertising and then being influenced by the city, got into street photography, transitioned into Candid's. Um, portrait shots and then uh, got into sports photography Man. a couple of years ago so cool. you talk about diving headfirst into things never really was a creator took one photography class maybe in high school and then didn't pick up a camera until I moved to the city wow that's awesome that's awesome I mean it doesn't we're, we're not in that day and age where you have to necessarily go to a traditional school to learn your craft sometimes I mean like Every, every learning, you know, I don't even know what you would call it. You can go online and teach yourself how to be a video editor. You can, so if it's in you, you can do it, right? 100%. There's a whole world of very talented people who are all self-taught in their respective fields. Even for myself, I'm all self-taught in everything creative, photography, podcasting, design, fill in the blank, all self-taught. Even to the extent of my professional capacity and my career, I'm all self-taught in that area as well. When I landed the agency job here in New York, I was working in TV and radio advertising and marketing. I very quickly transitioned into digital advertising, which is everything you see online but I wanted to have a focus in social media marketing. So eventually I quit my first job to start two businesses, one as a freelance photographer and two as a digital social media consultant. And what I learned on my own eventually led me to land a job as the social media lead at a PR firm. So almost everything that led up to this day in my profession has always been self-taught. But what about you? When did you move to New York? I moved to New York in 2004. 
so when I moved there, it was funny. Like I got my first job at like one of the trendiest salons in Brooklyn. And I found my models through MySpace and MySpace was like a new thing. So a lot of the things, I mean, I, I, st- I mean, I did incredible things when I was in New York, but I wish when I was in New York that I was the person that I am now because I didn't really know how to like, A, I didn't know the importance of self-care. Like, I don't even know how I <laughs> survived living in New York. I was like, ah! like crazy, like 20 year old, like just going crazy in New York. But like, I still accomplished a lot. But I wish that I would have been who I am today because I would have been able to, I feel like, just be more productive. Um, but that's okay. You know, we all, we all have, our, have our journeys, but like, man, you do, you do. So you asked me early on, like, you know, did I play sports as a young person? And like, I think that's one thing that is maybe a little bit different about me is no, I didn't. Like I, I was a like super tall, skinny, awkward punk rock kid, like into art. And I um, moved around quite a bit. And like, I think I ran track for a little bit in like sixth grade. I did gymnastics a little bit when I was younger, but no, I didn't play any sports whatsoever. Uh, So I didn't come into that until like later in life. Before we get into sports, let me knock out this intro real quick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's do it. Hey, what's up, y'all? Welcome to the Safe for the Stories podcast. I'm your host, Jacob Elijah. Joining me today, cyclist, vegan, content creator, YouTube vlogger, sub-series Sister Bikes, the accidental influencer, Erin <laughs> O'Hagan. She was a mouthful. Yep, there you go. That's how I lie. Yeah, that's how I do it. Before we get into sports, you briefly mentioned the arts. Walk me through you as an artist. I mean, I like I hung out in the art room. I loved drawing. I love music. I mean, that that's kind of like the crowd that I hung out with. So do you draw, paint? Are you in a band? Do you play any instruments? No, I love, I mean, music is like one of my biggest passions. I cannot play. My sister, on the other hand, like inherited all that talent because our our dad is a musician also. My sister, um, funny enough, it relates to what we were talking about. My sister moved to LA 10 years ago to be a rock star and she like was really successful, but then she kind of aged out of it and was like, I'm going to teach myself how to do video editing. And now she's like a top editor at Netflix and makes cartoons for a living. But like, she like, she like transferred her thing over. But, um, I do like draw a little bit here and there, but like lately I've found that like my creative endeavors are more focused on like kind of content creation and like photography is a huge passion of mine. Um, I, 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 if you ask me right now, like, okay, like take a camera and like, I, I don't know how a camera works, but like I see images in my head constantly and like, I'm always in pursuit of like creating those images, whether it be in collaboration with someone or using my phone or, or whatever. So that would be probably my biggest passion would be photography and video. Well, you are a holistic content creator, so you have that as well. Yeah. We briefly talked about this offline about imposter syndrome. 
So for me as a content creator, I find it struggling to call myself a photographer or a videographer or a content creator in general just because a lot of what I do is self-taught and I don't necessarily have that traditional background. And I do feel that it is a little bit relatable and a lot of content creators share a similar story being self-taught. Even today, I still have a ignorance is bliss mindset. Otherwise, I'll get too caught up on finding the perfect shot or creating the perfect story or building the perfect post. But see, I like I'm like, who wants that? Who who wants that shot? And we I think the imposter syndrome, I had to like check in with myself and uh, you know, in the world, like we are very much in this culture where it's like people's talents, accomplishments, living their best lives, whatever is constantly in our face. It's part of marketing, it's social media, like everybody is so living out loud, which makes it so much easier to compare yourself to what other people are doing. Like, oh, I look up to this artist or like, oh my God, like look at this person or like, who am I? Like, look at what this person's doing. But like, we all have a voice. And I like to think that we all have a space. And like, for for anyone that's putting themselves out there, there is an audience that wants to see and hear what you're offering. That's kind of where I like, was like, oh, well, like, I may not be like the gnarliest, most accomplished writer, but like, I got over my ego enough to like get out there and suck long enough that like I'm doing things now and I'm growing and like I'm talking about the challenges and like it's resonating with somebody. So you know what I mean? I think it's very easy to get caught up on the external that you don't focus on the internal. If you're happy with what you're creating and you're proud and you think it's cool, that's all that really matters. Let's jump back into you as a creator. As a photographer, what do you mostly shoot now? That's a good question. So I always call myself like the accidental influencer. It wasn't until a few years ago that I was like, I've had a full-time job working in the, in the beauty industry for nearly 22 years. And while like cycling played a role in my life, it didn't play as prevalent as a as a role as it started to a few years ago. Like I started out in my twenties, like riding track bikes with my punk rock friends with like captain and cokes in our water bottles. Like, yeah, like, you know, like just being <laughs> like just vibing. Yeah. And like listening to music and riding down, riding around downtown, like all night long. Like it was a blast. I had so much fun. Um, and I loved the bike then. And then like eventually graduating to like getting a little bit better of a bike, a geared bike, because I wanted to ride further. Um, but it was mostly something that I would squish in on the weekends. And like my attitude towards fitness was more about like, oh, I've been living my life really unhealthily. So like, or I, I got to go like, oh, I, I got to go because I'm you know, making up for like this lack of taking care of myself. That was like a lot of my like twenties. Cause like, um, I was a hairdresser, like we party, we drank, you go out and like smoke a bunch of cigarettes and like that, that's, I'm embarrassed to say, but that's like a huge part of my story. 
And so then I'm like, oh, I need to go to the gym because I feel like a loser and like I'm getting older. But it wasn't really like that I do this because this brings me joy or I do this because I deserve to feel really good. You know, so uh so okay, getting into the influencing thing. Um when when I started cycling more and I left working in a salon and started doing like house calls and some freelance work, I had a schedule that I could create on my own. And so I was started riding my bike like seven days a week and I started riding further. And then I started experimenting with riding on gravel. And then I got myself a fancy bike. Like it just kind of evolved and I started pushing myself further and then signing up for races. And through that, like I, I, just by sharing stuff on my cell phone, I started to get a bunch of followers online that took attention or paid attention to what I was doing. So that's a nutshell. What kind of happened with me? It was a perfect storm because cycling really did. Cycling's always been incredible, but like it, I feel like it exploded uh, a few years ago. A lot of sports did. Cycling definitely has been uh, on the up and up. You can't even buy a bike anymore. You can't even buy a bike online at all. Oh my gosh. Or components or yeah, I mean, there's a lot of things that play into that. And like in a way that's super exciting. And it can also be really frustrating when you're trying to get something. But um, but uh I don't know, the trying to get things online. I I kind of caught like that bug for a little bit with cycling where they're constantly releasing like new stuff and you're like, Oh, like they, I just got this thing, but then they just released this wheel and it's like 245 grams lighter than like last year's. And I've got to upgrade it. I got to upgrade. It's like this kind of this toxic consumerism. And like when stuff was sold out, like I kind of looked at everything and I'm like, I've got everything I need. I've got everything I need and more than most people have. And like, just be cool with what you have. Like you're what's standing in between you and happiness. Isn't like another nice thing. Like just be cool with what you got for a while. That's so relatable, especially as a content creator photographer. When I started out in photography, I thought that I needed to have the latest and greatest camera lenses and equipment to do a good job. Um, or else I felt like I was going to get left behind. It took me a while to realize that in actuality, I have everything that I need and I can still do a good job and produce great work with exactly what I have. I already have the tools in my arsenal to get the job done. And even now, today, I still follow that same mindset. I'm not too caught up on trying to have the latest and greatest equipment I already have everything that I need. That's wonderful. I mean, just the other day I was like scanning through Instagram and like looking at like that hashtag, like shot with an iPhone or like shot with like an iPhone 10 or whatever. Like, and it just depends on what your eye is. And sometimes I like as tying back into what we're talking about, like sometimes I like something that's a little gritty and not perfect. Like we saw this huge return of like film cameras and like people going back to like 
old school ways of shooting. And it was really like refreshing and inspiring in a way. Like, I don't want to see a picture that's been manipulated to look like it was shot on film. Like I want to see something shot on film and like rolled in the dark room. Like it's, it's special, right? <laughs> well, I have a 50, 50 split of agreeing with you and disagreeing with you because I have always shot digital with the exception of the first photography class I took in high school, which was shot on film. So ever since then, I've always liked for my creative photography aesthetic to be more traditional. So when I started freelance photography, even though I shot with a digital camera, I always made my photos look like they were shot on film. I even used to edit my photos in black and white because I liked that traditional look and feel. I also wanted the subject and the people to be the focal point of the photos. I didn't want it, anything to get blurred or distracted, and so that was a big part of my storytelling. That's incredible. That's mm-hmm. Now, for you, I'm, I'm curious about this as another content creator. I noticed, like, a shift. Like, I've, I love, like powerful images and like as you know there's been like a shift in social social media really trending on like reels and like videos and like a lot of people are really disappointed about that and it's been like a little bit of a learning curve where you're like oh do I stop posting images and I'm now like going more towards reels like have you experimented with that at all yeah a little bit is do you like one better than the other I mean is it still Yeah, I would say it's still mostly photography. Uh, First and foremost, I will always be a photographer. I have started to dabble in videography now and video and cinematography, but I think my mindset is still that of a photographer. What's interesting is that I've always wanted to get more into video. I just never really had the opportunity to do so. So now I kind of look at it like an excuse. And finally, I have the opportunity to start learning and experimenting with video. And so far, it's been a lot of fun. It's very interesting and it's different and it's new and exciting. And I like it for the most part. But again, first and foremost, I will always be and still am a photographer Mm -hmm. it's interesting with the content creation thing like being a content creator slash influencer like we were talking about kind of for me how it happened unexpectedly and like kind of going through the like oh I'm just like a a normal person riding my bike and like inspiring other people to get out there and like just try it if you're curious like look I'm a normal person and like here's where I was last year and here I am this year and like no you don't need the craziest bike or whatever and there's there's a community for you here it doesn't have to look like one thing uh, but once I started having brands reach out and like at first like when you have the first brand reach out and they're like hey like first it starts out like oh we want to send you some kit Like I'll send you some kit, which is like cycling outfit, bibs, jersey, it's called kit. Um, And they're like, oh, we'll, we'll trade you for some images. And like, it started happening pretty rapidly, like from, you know, different companies. And I very quickly became overwhelmed because then there's like this pressure, right? And you don't want to lose like representing who you are authentically and then have it be like, I eat this bar with four grams of fiber and did it like that didn't. So there was 
there was a few months there where like I ended up pulling out of brand deals and a lot of them were trade in the beginning, but you're like, whoa, free stuff. This is great. But like I was, I kind of had to pull back and I'm like, this doesn't feel like me. I don't want to sell people things. I don't want to align myself with brands that don't kind of have the same, you know, moral compass or the same like values that I do. Like, would I use this product? product? Am I already using this product and can I stand behind it? Like, um, that's more or less like the brands that I'm still in relationship with it. It's, uh, it's brands that like, I'm really passionate about that. I are, that I already use. And, um, after that, I kind of transitioned over into YouTube only because I didn't, I wanted to pull away from it being so like brand focused. And I just wanted to make awesome videos like out riding my bike. I love that. Keep it simple. Similar to you, I've also tried to work with brands that I support and also brands that support me. And if I'm trying a brand out or a product for the first time and I don't like their product or their service, I can't promote it. I'll tell them I just can't do it. I can't promote it. You're not inspired by it. Like that just feels kind of phony, right? I didn't even know, I didn't even know like being an influencer was a thing a few years ago. I didn't even know people made money. Well, I mean, you were working off of MySpace as an influencer, so. I, I mean, I, I had no idea. Like I'm like such an analog person, like old school, get myself together a little bit. But I, I have noticed, like I had to check in with myself, like I have my other job, right? And then I have like the, the hairdressing job. And then I have this other, you know, kind of side thing that like my, my presence on Instagram really isn't about making a ton of money. I mean, I make very, very little money and I've heard other people kind of in the cycling influencing sphere. A lot of cycling brands don't pay anything um, at all. And much to a lot of influencers dismay, because sometimes, as you know, to put together a photo shoot, to hire a photographer, to if they want studio shots or whatever, like that all costs money. It takes time. You're coming up with copy. I mean, it's an incredible amount of effort to get like a pair of cycling shorts. It doesn't do anything for anybody that's a part of the team there or whatever. So uh, cycling is a little behind in that area, in my opinion. Um, I've heard of other people like kind of in the athletic world that are like, oh yeah, like we all, you know, get, make money when we're in brand relationships and creating content. And I'm like, oh wow, you do. I mean, I have a media kit and everything, but it's not the main purpose. It sounds lovely though. <laughs> There are definitely a lot of factors that go into content creation and working with brands that not many people realize. Uh, very much business-oriented, negotiating contracts, rates, you name it. A lot happens behind the scenes that not many people understand or are privy to. I'm very lucky that I work on the other side of the coin as a marketer and advertiser that I have experience having those conversations and doing brand deals and negotiations. And on the other side of it, as a content creator, 
I'm negotiating for myself. There's a big reason why content creators and influencers have agents because there's a lot that goes into it that is pretty technical and business oriented. In many ways, I'm operating as my own manager and advocate when talking to brands because I do have that experience. So if you didn't, however, it could be very difficult at times. And there's a big piece of it that's education that could be missing. Oh, it was a lot of, it was a lot of like learning. And I, I mean, I, I did a lot of research and like figured it out over time, but I wouldn't say like, I'm not, I'm not an aficionado by any stretch of the imagination. I'm just, you know, I'm just a normal person out here loving riding my bikes, trying to connect with people. And right now, like nursing a horrible injury. Before we talk about your current injury and where you're at now, I want to take a few steps back. Where did you grow up? You briefly mentioned that you were a celebrity hairdresser in New York City. Talk me through that journey before you even got there. So let's see. I mean, I was born in Marin County, uh, right on the other side of San Francisco, and lived there for like the better part of my early years. Um, spent my teenage years here in Sacramento, uh, living with my mom. We we're a blended family here. And then I through high school, I did like an ROP program and ended up graduating high school two years early when I attended beauty school at the same time. So I got my beauty school license. I like, for as long as I can remember, I had a full-time job since the time I was 14. I was always like, I always wanted to be an adult even before I was ready. I was independent. I wanted to do my own thing. I wanted to live out of the house. So yeah, I, um, Moved to New York in early 2004, uh, wanting to be a celebrity hairdresser and um, was there for, God, I was just there for about a year. So not long enough, but long enough to like get what it was all about. And then, uh, yeah, ended up coming back to Sacramento. What were your interests in beauty and what led you to becoming a hairdresser? It's really funny because I've like, uh, it's so, I'm not, I've never considered myself to be like a, like a fancy person. Like I don't, I don't own eyeshadow. Like I'm, I'm pretty like minimal with that stuff. I don't think I've had a haircut in like four years. Uh, so for me, when I was younger, I think I was intimidated to go to regular college and it was something offered through my independent studies program. And like, I like dyed my hair pink when I was like little, you know, punk rock kid in high school. And I'm like, yeah, I'll do hair. And that sounds fun. It, like, I really didn't think about it. I was like, I could do that. And then I just kind of stuck with it there you for go. a long time. That's cool. <laughs> for a long time. So in a way, like, I mean, there's so many things that I love about it. I'm it. I worked, you know, whether it be at a salon, I also did um, some freelance work, you know, working in LA or New York, doing things like more behind the scenes, doing photo shoots, working with brands, doing like styling here. Um, and I really enjoyed that. But uh, leading the salon was like, kind of a game changer for me because it has allowed me to like 
put my energy into other things. And like after 23 years of kind of doing the same thing, like you're like, man, I want to, I want to explore something else too. Moving to New York, being a celebrity hairdresser, a stylist, how was that experience for you? Man, uh, imposter syndrome for sure. Mm. Uh, but it was exciting. It was so exciting moving to New York and just being filled with all of this energy when you're younger and like, but I definitely felt that when I was younger, I was constantly focused on like kind of what was going on that was like more exciting than what I was doing. Like, I felt like I was always like in pursuit of something like what I was doing was never good enough, I guess. Even when I was doing really amazing things, I'm like, oh, like this person's doing this or like, I didn't really find that like contentment. Um, not that I'm not growing, but like, I didn't feel like I felt really content in who I was until I got into my thirties. Walk me through the decision to move. You were only there for a year. Yes. So, I mean, this is another crazy part of my story. So I was in New York living it up, um, had a bunch of best friends who were working in the fashion industry. I lived above East Village Radio with this amazing drag queen mm. that I met like on a boat to Fire Island one time. I like wow. super impulsively moved to New York, by the way. Okay. Like sold my car and everything in a weekend. And I was like, bye. Nice. And I just went. I, and it's like probably fleeing things. I think I was going through a breakup and was like, I want to feel different. Like here I come, like, woo. But um, I, in November of 2000, uh, I think it was just about 2006, I woke up and I couldn't see out of my right eye. Um, and I flew back to California and I had had some other stuff happen before that, but basically long story short, I had a massive brain tumor wrapped around my pituitary gland that was like bleeding into my brain. So that's why I was going blind. So I, when I came back to Sacramento, I thought I was coming for diagnostics and they were like, oh, this is like a full on emergency situation. And so I ended up staying here and having complications from surgeries for that. So I just never ended up going back to New York mm. when that happened. Wow. Yeah. That's crazy. That's so wild. <laughs> it's weird because sometimes when I tell this story, I'm like, oh yeah, that did happen to me. And now with my injury that I'm going through right now, this almost feels worse in a way. I can't explain why just because like a brain tumor sounds so gnarly. But like in many ways, this has been just as debilitating and emotional, if not more. Wow. Walk me through your recovery from the brain tumor. So I ended up in total having three surgical procedures. The first one, they didn't remove enough of the brain tumor um, and it grew back. So it's, it was like wrapped around my pituitary gland in the middle of your brain, like, like phyllo dough, like encasing it. So when they removed a portion of it, um, they didn't take enough the first time and it grew back and your optic excuse me, your optic nerve kind of runs over that area. So if you have this big mass 
it, it disrupts your optic nerve. You start losing your vision. And a lot of people that have those type of tumors don't end up regaining their vision. So I'm really lucky. I regained about like, I'd say a good, like 80% of mine in my right eye. Um, so I had three procedures, the second surgery where they went in and they were more invasive, there were some complications that happened. They put, um, anytime you remove a large amount of tissue from an area in the body fluid wants to collect there. So when you do that in the brain, they have to put a drain in it's called a shunt. Um, I had one that ran from the base of my brain down my spine, out my, um, tailbone. And that drain somehow like messed up the nerves in my spine. So when I woke up out of surgery, my legs were on fire and I couldn't walk. <laughs> so it was, I mean, it was crazy. Not only that, but when they removed the tumor, my pituitary gland that was not functioning properly because it was encased in a tumor immediately went like, so my endocrine system went haywire. Um, they, they, at one point they diagnosed me with acromegaly, which is giganticism, which is what Andrea, the giant had. And they were like, Oh, if you don't take all these medications, like your nose is going to start widening and your forehead's going to start protruding. And, and I was like, <laughs> wow, <laughs> what? So like, that's a lot to take in though. That's insane. It, I mean, and I'm cliffs noting it, like it was wild how much that, so my body just like was kind of thrown into all of this chaos, not to mention, I kind of got thrown it. There was a lot of complications. There was a lot of medication complications, you know, trying to control pain, my, my, my thyroid, all that stuff. But Ultimately, what this all led me to was I started to research on my own how I could heal my body naturally. And this is what led me to being a vegan was like through that experience. I was on so much medication from the doctor, um, all of them creating side effects. And I was like, I feel sick all the time. I had to inject myself three times a day with this medication called octreotide. And it made it to where like, I couldn't digest food. Um, it was so gnarly. And so when I started to do research, it was like, oh, if I do this crazy kind of raw foods diet, like I might be able to heal myself. So despite my endocrinologist, um, telling me that I couldn't be on all these 30, whatever different medications I ended up doing it. And I healed my body in a matter of months. Wow. Yeah. It was, even she couldn't believe it. That's insane. Like, I remember my mom and I went in and she told me I would have to be on thyroid medication for the rest of my life. And we went in and they tested all my levels and she's like, it's amazing. It's like, you never had anything. And I was like, cool. I never took the drugs. And wow. she was like, what? And my mom was like, that's cool. Do, do you think a part of that also might be a little psychological, like mind over matter? Yes. All the things. I also think in a way. So when I think about my twenties, it's funny, like when I'm recounting all these stories, like it comes out like this jumbled garb of like, oh yeah. And then there was this, blah, blah, blah. and I very much feel like that's how the first 
half of my life was, was just kind of chaotic, me running around, not, not, not knowing what I'm doing, like, Wah! and like, all of a sudden it was like, my body got sick. It got my attention. And it was like, Hey, you're not taking care of me. So I'm going to get really sick so you can slow the F down. Right. And the only thing I could focus on was like soaking beans and nuts and juicing. And it was like, all of my efforts went into like nurturing and like loving my body. Now, granted that extreme form of veganism is not something that I was able was, or not something that I would want to maintain on a long-term, uh, basis because I, I, in my opinion, when it comes to eating any kind of diet or lifestyle that trends on like being in extremes where you're cutting out macro, like you can't eat any fat or you can't eat any cooked food. I just feel like that trends a little bit, no judgment on anybody else, but that feels disordered to me in, in a way. Um, and again, like I would never label anybody else. I don't even care to have opinions on how other people choose to eat for their own self. Um, I'm not, I'm not that vegan hashtag, not that vegan for my, myself. Like I choose to not have any like food rules other than I don't eat products that come from animals that cause harm to living things other than products. Right. So yeah. It turned into something where that was more sustainable by me, where I wasn't just eating raw food. Sustainable is a great way to put it. I would also look at it as a well-balanced diet. The extremes being cutting out something for just the sake of cutting it out. For me, becoming a vegetarian, coincidentally at the same time I became a runner, was more about healthy eating than it was about cutting anything out. What I did cut, however, would include any high-processed foods, sugar, soda, candy. My general rule of thumb is if it comes in a box or a bag, I won't eat it. That's amazing. And to get more into it, I also really love to cook and bake. So I cook and bake everything from scratch, I know my way around the kitchen and I'll just leave it at that. It's it's like one of my biggest passions and you can still make pancakes. Like beautifully like, yeah, there you go. Do you do like oats, banana? Like, what do you do? So actually I make buttermilk pancakes. Oh, okay. That's how you know I grew up in the South. The Texan coming out in me, I use buttermilk for almost everything. I make buttermilk pancakes, buttermilk homemade biscuits. What? It's usually a good Sunday brunch type of cheat meal, buttermilk pancakes, the go-to. You know, doesn't that make you, like when you cook a meal that like is so nostalgic for you, like food to me is something that is so beautiful. And like, it's, uh, it's something that's always been celebrated in my home. You know, I have like Spanish, I have a big Italian family on my mom's side, my dad, Irish, but like my dad's wife of many years, her family there came here in 1976 and opened up like one of the very first like fine wine 
and cheese shops in Richmond, California. And like, we were like wine pairing and eating food when I was like 13, like testing our palates. Like, what do you taste? Is it acid? Is it this? Is it this? So like food is something that's really, really special in my family. And like, there's nothing more fun to me on a Saturday night than like coming home, even like when I'm by myself and like cooking myself a beautiful meal, like that is winding down to me. That is fun. I don't feel as weird saying this out loud to you, but when I took that extreme route and cut off all processed artificial foods, my palate completely changed. I'm not kidding or over-exaggerating when I say I can taste artificial, I can taste processed. And so if it's less than organic or anything made from scratch, I can physically, literally taste it. And that completely changed the way that I look at food, especially as a self-taught chef, if you will. A main reason why I love cooking and cooking from scratch is because I know exactly what's in it and how it's made. And at the end of the day, at the end result, the food itself usually tastes a lot better. I think that's like, that's wonderful. I totally identify with everything that you just said. Like I, when people say like, oh, like I couldn't eat like that. Like I couldn't, I couldn't not have this. Like I, my diet, like I, because A, I've been eating like this for so long and I, I was never allowed fast food. Like fast food was never something really that I ate. So I don't crave it. Like I, and, and I don't deny myself certain things. Like when I want like a beautiful piece of French bread, like I have a beautiful piece of French bread. I don't have a loaf of French bread, but because I don't deny myself certain nutrients, I don't feel that my body wants to like consume, like I'm trying to compare it to like the, the girls I used to work with at the salon, all of the girls I would work with at the salon were afraid of eating carbohydrates, like no carb, anything. I can't eat anything. I can only eat chicken and spinach, but then like they, their bodies were like giving them these crazy cravings for junk food because really what their body was craving was carbohydrates. And so they end up like, oh, whatever, I'm just going to have a free day and I'm going to eat a whole pizza. And then I'm going to have a new day the next day. And it's this process of like punishment with your, with your diet. And I see a lot of like toxic eating and toxic attitudes towards food. And I'm like, if you just ate balanced and like, you wouldn't find yourself craving all of these unhealthy things because you're not depriving, you're literally nourishing yourself so much that you're not going to crave that other stuff. You feel so great. That's my opinion. I don't know. Oh, it's a good opinion to have. And it's a great mindset to have about health, food, and nutrition. For me, even as a competitive athlete, I know exactly what it takes and how it feels to go or take that extreme route cutting off x y and z types of food either to cut weight as a wrestler or to diet as a football player you name it I know exactly how that feels when you cut certain foods out your body kind of goes through this withdrawal feeling of not having it anymore it's also pretty interesting because for myself like I said I've gone that extreme route cutting weight or 
to go on a certain diet to slim down or get back in shape, right? And now I look at food and nutrition in a totally different lens, very much like fuel. But also I'm not hesitant to indulge with sweets or, quote, cheat meals. I actually indulge almost every single day. I kid you not, this is my post-workout go-to routine meal, an apple and a banana, a glass of chocolate milk, and Pop-Tarts. And almost every single night, I eat half a pint of ice cream with a handful of chocolate-covered pretzels if I don't have any home-cooked, home-baked chocolate chip cookies lying around and my cookie jar isn't full. Especially because I run as frequently as I do. Also, everything kind of balances itself out. See, and I'm like, in my head, I'm thinking about like, when I started cycling, especially when I started like seriously cycling and doing like distance, there was such a huge learning curve for me and like how to fuel my body. And like, I started to understand, you see these cyclists, like, grabbing like handfuls of sour patch kids and like coca-cola because it's like those quick processed carbohydrates that you're like eh, like you could feel with like zero fiber because you don't want the slow digestion like you want it in your legs right now so that was a whole other part that I had to learn and so especially when I'm obviously not totally incapacitated the way I am now, I eat so much of my eating is of course focused on joy and my love of food, but it's also on either fueling my performance or my recovery. So I know if I, and I've got just from, um, in the beginning when I, I, I lost a bunch of weight first of all, when I started cycling a bunch, I've always been side note, I've always been a very tall, lean person to, um, in a, in a way that like I was teased about it my whole life. I was super self-conscious about it. But when I started cycling a whole bunch, it's like, I dropped even that much more. So I wanted to learn. I'm like, damn, am I in a deficit that I don't know about? Um, so I did a, some tracking for about a few months just to make sure I'm like, okay, I'm burning this much during the day when I'm not even working out. And then on my workouts, I need this, like I need to be eating this much. So now I have kind of a grasp, like caloric, calorically what I need to consume based on like what I'm, what I'm doing out there on the bike. For an athlete, that is the smartest and safest way to do it, to understand what you're burning, what you need to fuel, like what you need to stay healthy. None of it has to do with how I look, which is so refreshing because coming out of an industry where it's so focused on like what women look like. And like for 23 years, I've been talking to people who look in the mirror at me and like rip themselves apart. I go, I don't like this about myself, or I hate this, or like, oh, and you compliment people and like, oh, I have to lose weight. And like, nobody's like, yeah, I'm awesome. Like, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm great. Um, so coming from a place of like, I want to eat to like feel good and perform well and nourish my body was like a switch that was really great. 
2022 was starting out to be like one of the most exciting years for me in cycling. Mm -hmm. I had signed up for some major events. Um, I was doing a couple of really fun races with uh, my best friend who I also have the page sister bikes with like my other friend who my other normal girlfriend who likes to do gnarly rides, just like me. And we start our own little series on my YouTube, but, um, I had so many plans and so much momentum going into this year. And then I have a silly accident where I was carrying a chair at my client's house after a haircut and I tripped and my knee hit the leg of the chair and like dislocated my patella out and I fainted and I woke up and my kneecap was on the backside of my leg. Ugh. And I was like, yeah, it was awful. It was, it was gnarly. That's gnarly, so I yeah. I know. I put it back in myself. What? I had her hut. Yeah, I wait, did. wait, wait, wait. Hold on, hold on, hold on. How okay. in the world? Okay. Could so that- I wake up, right? And I'm laying on my client's floor and like, the first what first thing that occurs to me is like, I, I just want to get out of here so I can be comfortable so I can actually process what's going on. I have a really hard time being um, in pain in front of other people. I'm like a, a, a recluse in that area. So um, I look down at my kneecap that's like behind my leg and I rolled onto my back and I'm screaming and wailing through this. So I grabbed my patella and like just started straightening my leg. Cause when your uh, kneecaps out, your leg is stuck bent and it like, bam, popped in, fainted again. (laughs) And then, um, her husband ended up carrying me like a baby to my car and they were like, should we call you an ambulance? And I was like, Oh no, you guys, I'm fine. I just wanted to get out of there. In my mind, I was like, even if I get around the corner and call an ambulance, like I just want to get out of their space. So I didn't make it very far. I really did only make it around the corner before, you know, getting a ride to the emergency room. But uh, turns out I blew out my MPFL ligament, which is the main ligament attaching the medial, like inside of your kneecap to your femur. So mine like blew out in two places. And if it wasn't a surgical fix, then it was like 97% chance that it was going to keep dislocating. I'm like, well, what, like, what would your option be as an athlete? You're like, I got to do it. Right. But it really, um, obviously disrupted my plans for this year. However, a couple of cool things really happened. A I was moving really fast again, as I described me in my twenties, like I'm, I'm that person you get going, you're like, Oh, I'm doing this. And I got so many irons in the fire and like energy, but like my self-care like had kind of, I wasn't sleeping enough. I had kind of fallen away from my routine. I just like, and again, I feel like my body like finds ways of getting my attention. So it was like, sweet, I'm going to dislocate your knee. (laughs) Thank you. So like in these past few weeks, I'm like, okay, now I have the opportunity while I'm focused on rebuilding up my strength. And like, I can't go and rebook myself 12 hour days of work and then hundred mile bike rides on the weekend. Like I really can just focus on what's simple right now, which is like getting healthy and like, what, and what are my immediate goals? 
not all of this other stuff that matters. Like this is the only thing that matters right now is like taking care of myself and getting healthy. And it got really simple and, um, really great in a way, like that's my main focus. And like letting go of the fear that like, oh my God, my brand relationships are all going to end. And oh my gosh, I'm going to lose all my clients and just making peace with like whatever's supposed to be is going to be. And I'm going to like roll through it with grace. It's in, enabled me to connect with people through social media. Like I had people reaching out to me from all over the world, from like hospital beds that are like, I'm going through it too. I had like pro women cyclists, like reach out from, um, other countries. They're like, Oh my gosh, I just got into a car accident. We're like video chatting each other crying. And I'm like people that didn't even know me. And like, just because people know what it feels like to be an athlete and all of a sudden be robbed of your independence and like, and your ability to move and like the fear that you're not ever going to get back. And like, it's provided such an incredible comfort and a new area that I can connect with other people over, I suppose. Okay. Taking a step back, you're recovering from the brain tumor. How did you regain your eyesight? How was the physical and mental recovery process and how did this recovery process carry over into cycling? Okay, so I mean, from the brain tumor, man, I mean, the brain tumor, after all of the surgeries, I mean, that took years for my body to normalize. Not just that, but like kind of the emotional trauma I would like to say, I mean, there was some like regression in there a little bit. Like I did this like extreme self-care kind of like, you know, raw foods and all this and got myself better. And then like, I kind of slid back a little bit and like maybe wasn't treating myself as well. Um, just, and I think that that was more of a way to kind of cope with like, the emotional PTSD of that, of that situation. Again, like I was so much younger and didn't really have the tools that I have now. And like, when I say tools, I mean like the tools that I have of my main like coping tools in life are, am I nourishing my body? Am I moving my body? Am I getting out and like experiencing nature? These are like the like, these are my like main things that I do. Am I like sleeping well? And like, do I have like, you know, kind and supportive friendships and like relationships with like family and stuff? Like those are my tools now. My tools when I was younger was like, oh, like let's go party and drink and blah and like, and you know, go to a, go to a rave or whatever it was, you know? So it took me a good handful of years to really kind of get through that experience, not only physically, but, but mentally, um, and really kind of take in the lessons of that experience. It was after that, um, cycling that like kind of cycling started to play more of a prevalent role. I would say getting into my thirties was getting into cycling more like an outlet for you 
throughout this recovery process? Not during my brain tumor surgery. It was, I mean, truth be told, it really started to ramp up with like a few like partners ago. I like started to like, I had like a boyfriend that like, we lived in this crazy like warehouse loft in downtown and he had turned it into a bike shop. And like, that's how we bonded. Like we would go out and like ride bikes all night. Um, so like I dated like a couple dudes that were really into cycling, which is like, he was the one I was with when I got like my first geared bike. It wasn't a Narnar bike at all. Like in the thousands, it was actually like a 1970s Bianchi, but it was like, it was mint. It was mint. And the first serious ride I ever did, I think I was like wearing jeans and like wow. baby commando and like road. I did like the Folsom ride. So in Sacramento, I think it's the equivalent of like 30 miles or something, but like was listening to my headphones, like, yeah, like this is the best. Um, so like, I certainly like the love was there for the sport, but, uh, and I knew that I wanted to invest in a better bike, but like that took some years of saving. When did you get serious about cycling? I mean, I would say I started to get serious about four years ago when I got my first like big girl bike. Was that in preparation for a race or just getting more experienced in cycling? Yeah. And I had also like gravel cycling was kind of like starting to like come into my sights. And I was like, that was something totally new to me. So I ended up um, upgrading the bike and getting enough money to kind of get my first serious bike. What do you love most about cycling? I mean, everything, everything. I love, I just love that it has, impacted every area of my life like it truly it it's so cheesy to say but it feels like it's therapy like it has Mm. become the community that I'm a part of it has also I've seen things like I've been more places in the world and seen more things on the bike than I ever thought that I would see and I still haven't seen hardly anything like I I still have yet to go. I want to go to Europe. Like that's one of the big things for me. Like I want to travel on the bike and connect with other people. Um, My self-esteem, like showing up and doing something that's so hard that you never thought you could do. And then you do it and you're like, I'm like, I'm doing this. That's incredible. Like just being really proud, proud of myself. Um, So for like, for those reasons, it really has changed every part of my life. And it's such a big part of my, of my identity and, um, and who I am now. Running for me. Every single day, it's honestly less about the physical. it's my time. Like for those 30 minutes to an hour that I run every day, that's my, there are a lot of other aspects to running that I love about it. To your, I love everything there is about the sport, about running period. 
So well, I, I, um, I get the runner's high too. I definitely went through some periods um, where I got really into running. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. like this whole situation with my knee isn't kind of totally out of the blue. Genetically, I inherited really, um, really unstable joints because we're all super tall and hyper flexible. So I've had like what they call like subluxating knees. So like my patellas over the years would be like, whoop, and then go back in. So running ended up being something that was hard on my joints. Um, but I get it. And like, man, with like the music and you're just in the zone and like, mm, mm, like it's, it reminds me of like when I would walk or it's like that high, you would get those endorphins that like, I don't know. It's like lifeblood. You're like, it's good to be here. And when I think life can be so heavy and out of your control. And like, when you know that you have that, like in your wheelhouse, you're in that knowledge of like, I can put on my headphones and like my running shoes or my bike and like, just go right out there and like, get that to myself. Like, you never want to, you never want somebody to take that from you. It's like, you can't live without it. If you have that right. For you, do you do or have done much cross training? Yes, I do. Um, it's, I, um, I love lifting. I mean so much and I miss it big time. I like my, my strength, but, uh, I love lifting and resistance training and like functional movement. Uh, I did get into yoga. In fact, I like got certified to teach yoga back at one point in my life. However, because of my body, yoga is pretty much the worst thing that I can do because Mm -hmm. I have hyper flexibility. My body needs more strengthening and like foundational and like, um, working on like balance and core and every, everything that you would think of as like grounding rather than like stretching. Cause that contributes to my joints being unstable. Wow. Yeah. What does your day-to-day look like now? So for what I'm seeing, like my basic physio through my health insurance I have now, which isn't awesome. And he's basically working on like flexion with me and breaking through scar tissue. So the goal is 10 degrees of flexion every week. And it's kind of like breaking my leg a little bit more every day. Um, And then I'm also working with a physio that I met through Instagram and we're doing some strength training, body weight, strength training, kind of building up my glute strength to help stabilize my new ligament and and everything. Um, I am, I just started being able to drive because I got enough flexion in my knee. So right now I'm working, I'll see a couple clients a day. I do house calls. I've held on, pardon me. I've held on to like 30 regulars. And so like, I'll work for a few hours a day doing hair. Sometimes I'm like cutting hair in a backyard with dogs there. We're in our pajamas. Like there's nothing fancy about it. And like, Mm -hmm. I love it. I got to keep everything I love out of doing hair and like leave all the other stuff behind. Mm-hmm. is like, you know, That's people's awesome. homes with them. It's, it's so cool. So I do that. And then I'm also focusing on like, when I get home, um, I try to dedicate a few hours kind of 
coming up with like content relating stuff, making plans for like, you know, what kind of photo shoot or like I have through sister bikes, I have a pretty big project that we had put together where in the first week in September, Lindsay and I are doing a sponsored ride where we have a handful of brands sponsoring us and we are biking across Oregon on the gravel. Nice. Just like two, two babes out in the woods <laughs> with two GoPros. Leading into what your recovery timeline may look like. When do you anticipate you might get back on the bike? So I need, the physical therapist told me last week that I need 110 degrees or more of flexion to get a full rotation on the stationary bike. I just, I've been getting on the stationary bike and just toggling it and pushing it a little bit further every day so I can get there. Hopefully within two weeks, I'll be on the stationary bike. There'll be a few weeks of like building up some fitness, but it, I'm thinking it's going to be at least six to eight weeks. It's going to be, it's going to take the better part of the year to kind of build myself up back to at least a, close to what I was when this happened. Just hearing you talk about the timeline, I'm thinking, oh, wow, like you'll be back on the bike in no time. It is a process. I also have to accept that like, if I need to move this Oregon Outback project, like we're going to move it and it's okay. And it's going to happen. And like, I'll give the brands that invested their money back. And like, even if no brands sponsor it, like we'll go do it. Like none of that is important. So stressing out on not like hitting these goals where it's like, I just have to be like, you're going to work your hardest every day. And let's like, hope that you get there. But if you don't, like, it's going to be okay because you will get back on your bike. Like it's going to happen. Have you found something else that you're currently doing to occupy that space that was cycling? Man, I'm going to be totally honest with you. I had, I, when I knew that I was going to go into surgery, I mean, I had like books stacked up and I had all these ideas. I'm like, oh, I'm going to do like these videos for YouTube. We pre-shot some content. I did all this stuff and I set everything up. But this being only the fifth week, um, up until last week, I was in 24-7 agony. And everything that I had planned for myself kind of went out the window. I got into a few dark spaces just because I wasn't anticipating like how insanely painful this injury was going to be. But like, even my mom knows, I mean, I, I think I screamed and cried for two weeks straight and didn't sleep. So I, I had plans, but like, I wasn't as productive as I wanted to be. I'm just now coming out of that space and like, coming back into like, okay, like I only recently within the past day filmed a follow-up video for my YouTube on like, this is how I'm doing. Cause I couldn't, I didn't even have the energy to do it. So I'm getting there. You briefly mentioned that you're currently taking a step back, almost recovering in a few different ways, right? Yes. And that was the thing. Like I, I was, when I, was first came out of surgery again I had all these plans and I'm like I'm going to be doing like a YouTube video a day I'm going to be doing live stories I'm going to work with all these companies that are going to help people on recovery and really like foster connections within that community but then 
when it came down to it, like I needed to let all of that go and just be like, I actually need to just sleep when my body's tired and I need to drink water. And like, right now I need to like dial in, like how much, what's the balance of Advil and Tylenol and like kind of surrender over that brain. That's like, you need to be producing, you need to be doing this because you, you can't have idle time. And I'm like, you just need to listen to exactly what your body wants. And like, if you're going to sleep for 12 hours a day, do it. I don't even think I looked at my phone for two weeks and it, it was kind of awesome. I am never on my phone. It's weird. I'm always on my phone, but I'm also kind of like not always on my phone. That's an amazing quality to have. Other last question really was like, what's next? But you've kind of already answered that. I am like, I'm going to dedicate my time to like being like in pursuit of joy, seeing new things, work, save, travel, and connect with people. And like, hang out with my mom, like really simple, good stuff. Like I just want to be in pursuit of joy, be happy, have fulfilling relationships and like have more life experiences. All right. Well, this was great. (laughs) Thank you so much. much. We can wrap this up. This is cool. I super appreciate you connecting with me. If anyone wants to check out my Instagram, it's at Erin O'Hagan Health or my YouTube channel. The link is on my Instagram. It's at Erin O'Hagan. Great conversation. I needed it. I'll sign off here. Thank you. Stay tuned. More to come. As always, stay for the stories.